Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. Welcome to this hour of devotion at the foot of the cross, as through words, music and silence, we reflect upon the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his saving death. We begin with an opening prayer. Let us pray. God, our Father, all holy, all loving, who gave your only Son for the salvation of us all, look mercifully upon us, your servants, as we bow in penitence before his cross. Give us faith to behold him in the mystery of his passion and to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. Let his wounds be our healing, his death our life, and his shame our glory, that we may also partake of the victory of his resurrection to the honour of your name. Amen.
I find no case against him. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Jesus, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I do not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their captain and the officers arrested Jesus and bound him. First they took him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better to have one person die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. The woman said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus on the face, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They asked him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. 
One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment the cock crowed. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. This was to fulfil what Jesus had said, when he indicated the kind of death he was to die. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are the king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? After he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They shouted, Not this man but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a bandit. In the New Testament, each of the four Gospel writers tells the story of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in a very distinctive way, revealing unique but complementary insights. In St Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus at his most recognisably human, by contrast, in St John's Gospel, the version that we shall be hearing during this service, we see him at his most divine, in that here we encounter a Jesus who is himself driving events forward, a Jesus who is very much in control of his own destiny. But for me, one of the reasons why St John's Passion narrative is so powerful is that it enables us to see again and again how the presence of Christ, the light of the world, reveals the true extent of the darkness that dwells within the human heart, just as a bright light illuminating a dark corner can reveal all kinds of horrors, all kinds of unpleasant realities that we would much rather remain hidden. That is why the imagery of darkness and light is such a striking and distinctive feature 
of St John's Gospel. We have just heard how Judas, one of the twelve disciples, brings a cohort of armed men bearing torches under cover of darkness to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane. And yet it is Jesus, the unarmed man in the midst of this mob, who commands our attention and dominates the scene as he demands to know whom they are seeking. They may be armed, but the light of Christ's presence exposes their fear and their weakness, causing him to fall to the ground in terror before him. This is the cowardice of those who throughout the ages have used violence and the abuse of power as a means of control. The cowardice of the playground bully who terrorises the vulnerable by inflicting pain, but whose own weakness and fear causes him to crumble as soon as he loses the power to dominate. The cowardice of the tyrant who hides behind brutal armed guards. The cowardice that lurks within the darkest parts of our own hearts, from which we do our best to avert our own eyes. And then we have Simon Peter, the stalwart follower of Jesus, whose reaction is to meet the threat of violence with violence, striking out with his sword. In the light of the presence of Christ, that too is shown up for what it truly is, the recognisable human desire to lash out and hurt the one who threatens us, but a response that, in the greater scheme of things, resolves absolutely nothing. And it is Simon Peter, whose earlier indignant and self-righteous profession of unwavering loyalty to Jesus does not even survive its first and most basic test, as he does the very thing that he swore he would never do. You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? I am not. Peter, the man whose fear and loss of moral courage leads him to dissociate himself from the very one to whom he had sworn undying loyalty, not once, but three times. Such is the capacity for disloyalty and loss of nerve that lurks within the souls of the best of us. And then we see the systems of power at work and the people who derive their own status and influence from them. Systems that can so easily become corrupted into forces of injustice and oppression, corrupting the very people who exercise power within them. These too are exposed for what they are when Christ, the light of the world, comes into their midst. So, Jesus is passed from Annas to Caiaphas to Pilate, the Roman governor, who has the power of life and death over him. Pilate, who recognises that according to the processes of law that it is his job to oversee, this man is being held without cause. And it is Pilate's declaration that resounds and re-echoes throughout the whole horrific story as it unfolds. I find no case against him, for Pilate knows that this 
is an innocent man. Here is your king. Then Pilate took Jesus to have him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And he dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out, and wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you and the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king, and they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, 
he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. Some of you may be familiar with Khalid Hosseini's 2003 novel, The Kite Runner. It tells of two young boys, Amir and Hassan. Amir has privilege and status. His friend Hassan is the son of the family servant and is utterly devoted to Amir. Indeed, his courage and his loyalty to Amir are such that they cost him dear with horrific and brutal consequences. Set against Hassan's simple goodness and courage and loyalty, Amir's own woeful lack of those qualities becomes ever more apparent by comparison. So much so that Amir finds that he cannot bear having Hassan anywhere near him. He turns against him, frames him for theft and has him, him sent away. Hassan the loyal, Hassan the dedicated, Hassan the truthful, Hassan the boy of simple courage and goodness, Hassan who put his life on the line for the very boy who has now betrayed him so devastatingly. It's interesting, isn't it, what happens when the courageous and selfless actions of another human being serve to expose by comparison our own lack of those same qualities. Many years ago, when I was a university student, my housemates and I had been hosting a meal with another student friend of ours. At the end of the evening, our guest left. And I didn't actually witness what happened next, but I certainly heard it. Because as our friend crossed the road outside our house, she turned back to wave goodbye. I heard a screech of tires and a thud as she was hit by a speeding car. Without a moment's hesitation, my housemates, one of them in bare feet, shot out into the night to see if she was okay. But I found myself rooted to the spot, frozen with fear, unable to move. Mercifully, the girl was not badly injured, but it was a shocking moment of revelation for me because I was horrified to discover how inadequate and how cowardly I proved to be in that moment of crisis. But I can also remember just for a fleeting instant a bizarre and perverse feeling of resentment towards my housemates because it was their own instantaneous response of courage and concern that had exposed my own inadequacy. And worse still, they knew about my failure. I'm a lot older and wiser and hopefully more courageous these days and I hope that I would have responded very differently had that happened now. But I still remain quite shaken by the memory of that uncomfortable moment of self-revelation. When such painful and exposing truths about ourselves suddenly come to light, we have a choice. We can face up to our shortcomings and try to do something about them, or we can try to block out that painful revelation. In Amir's case, by destroying the one person whose continuing goodness and love towards him was a perpetual reminder of his own cowardice and disloyalty. And as the adult Amir reflected with hindsight, 
the terrible curse that he himself had to bear from that moment onwards was that he got away with it. Throughout his ministry, and especially during his passion, Jesus, the light of the world, evokes extreme and conflicting reactions in those around him because of the truths that he exposes simply by his presence in their midst. There are those who respond by reaching out to receive his gift of healing and hope. And there are those who so cannot bear it that they wish to destroy the very light that they have found so exposing. Which is why Jesus is so hated, above all by his own people and his own religious authorities, because by his actions and indeed by his very presence, he exposes their shallowness, their hypocrisy and their lack of love. Which is why they do not simply want him arrested or imprisoned or driven from the city, they want his blood. And so great is their thirst for his death that they are willing to sacrifice everything, even their own national loyalty, to secure it. We have no king but Caesar. And in the midst of all of this, we have Pilate. Pilate, who not only knows that Jesus has no case to answer, but who recognises that Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. Pilate, who does everything he possibly can to try to evade responsibility for what follows, handing Jesus back to the religious authorities, trying to find justification to release him. Pilate is the one man who both knows the truth and speaks the truth. He is a man of power who could change the course of events to prevent horrific injustice being committed. But Pilate is also afraid. And in the end, it was just easier to give in to the howling mob and to let an innocent man die.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer, and by night also I take no rest. But you continue holy, you that are the praise of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, they put their trust in you and were not confounded. But as for me, I am a worm and no man, the scorn of men and despised by the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lips at me and wag their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him deliver him, if he delights in him. But you are he that took me out of the womb, that brought me to lie at peace on my mother's breast. On you have I been cast since my birth. You are my God, even from my mother's womb. Oh, go not from me, for trouble is at hand, and there is none to help. Many oxen surround me, fat bulls of Bashan close me in on every side. They gape wide their mouths at me, like lions that roar and rend. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart within my breast is like melting wax. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my gums. My hands and my feet are withered, and you lay me in the dust of death. For many dogs are come about me, and a band of evildoers hems me in. I can count all my bones. They stand staring and gazing upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. O Lord, do not stand far off. You are my helper. Hasten to my aid. Deliver my body from the sword, my life from the power of the dogs. O save me from the lion's mouth, and my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. It is finished. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, 
They took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. This was to fulfil what the scripture says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that is what the soldiers did. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciples, Here is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple took her into his own house. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. St John's Gospel may reveal to us Jesus at his most divine, but there is nothing remotely godly about the reality of crucifixion, the torn flesh, the screams of pain, the blood, the heat, the flies. Crucifixion is a particularly barbaric form of execution because the actual cause of death is suffocation. If you are suspended by your arms in that position, you cannot fill your lungs with air. The only way in which you can breathe is by forcing your body upwards, pushing against your broken, torn feet and fighting for every last breath. That is why when the soldiers wished to hasten the death of a criminal, they would break his legs, making it impossible for him to continue to do so. Above the altar, behind me, you will see a depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus by the artist Glyn Jones. It's a painting that I know intimately and in detail because I spend a great deal of time at the altar here, Sunday by Sunday. And I find this particular depiction of the crucifixion unusually striking, because what the artist shows us is the actual moment of Christ's death. Only seconds before, Christ had been alive. Fresh blood continues to flow down from his wounds. Yet you can also see from the dull, lifeless eyes of the crucified man and from his slackened jaw that his tortured body is now dead. Beneath him the women at his feet and the beloved disciple show their anguish and despair at this terrible moment. Jesus the Messiah is dead, utterly and definitively dead 
and with him all hope has died too. The sky is black, darkness has covered the earth, and in the distance you can see a bolt of lightning striking the temple, tearing the temple veil from top to bottom. So, why place an image of such utter desolation in the most prominent place of all in this beautiful sacred building? Because there is something else as well. There is something else at the heart of all this darkness and desolation and hopelessness, which is the strange, perplexing knowledge perhaps more apparent in St John's Gospel than in any of the others, that Jesus chose to embrace this as his destiny, that he consented, that he surrendered himself into the hands of his torturers and his destroyers, and more bafflingly still, that he did it for them. And not only did he do it for them, he did it for us. And who are we that for our sakes our Lord should take frail flesh and die? What kind of a love is that? How much love does it take to do such a thing as that? That is the most extraordinary and wonderful and earth-shattering truth about Good Friday, that however deep the desolation and the grief, however pointless the suffering, however hopeless the outcome, in the end, the love was quite simply the greater. In the passion narrative that we've just heard, Jesus' dying words signal that his great and costly work of love for us is at last complete. It is finished. And all we can do is to sit at the foot of the cross in wonder. Here might I stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Let us pray. It was for us, Lord Jesus, that you endured all this. The hatred, the treachery, the scourging, the mockery, the agony and shame and dereliction of the cross. It was for us and for our salvation that you suffered and died. Grant us each a deeper understanding of what you have done for us, that we may live as those who are no longer their own, but have been bought with the price of your lifeblood. O Lamb of God, our most gracious Saviour and Redeemer. Amen. 
Amen. Let us pray for the coming of God's kingdom in the words our Saviour taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. 